Let's begin with prayer. O Lord our God, you are the great and holy God, great and greatly to be praised. We know you through creation and conscience, and yet by nature we have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Yet you have given us your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and behold the wondrous things of your law. You have given us that spirit of truth to lead us into all truth. You've anointed us with the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We pray that you would bless our study, that these would not be uh, the sorts of truths and the sort of knowledge that puffs up, but that it would be knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue our lesson on Norman Shepherd, and this is our overall series on the Federal Vision, and we began with an overview, a two-part overview, and then we started with a consideration of Norman Shepherd on the doctrine of justification. There were a couple points at the very end of that previous lecture that we didn't have time to address, and so we're going to address those points now, and it's really going to cause us to pivot from the doctrine of justification in general to the specific issue of the imputation of Christ's obedience to the believer. And it's also going to be distinct from last time in that what we're considering here from Norman Shepherd is not merely his doctrinal position, what he thinks the Bible teaches, but it also has to do with some assertions that he has made to the effect that he's saying that the view that our church would espouse, the view that I, I think we can call the, the confessional reformed view, he says that view is absent from Calvin and the early reformers and absent from the Heidelberg Catechism and men like Zacharias or Sinus, who was the chief author of the Heidelberg, and even absent from the Westminster Standards. He would say that our understanding that Christ's active and passive obedience, His suffering of the punishment of sin, satisfying the law by His penal obedience, uh, suffering the penalty, and his righteous satisfaction of the law's precept, obeying all the commands and fulfilling all righteousness, we would say that both of those elements, his suffering and his obedience, are imputed to the believer and constitute the righteousness whereby we are made right with God in justification. He would say that what I've just described is absent from Calvin, absent from Ursinus, absent from the early Reformed confessions and creeds, absent even from the Westminster Standard. So we're dealing with a historical question, not simply a biblical or doctrinal question. Now, as we, but before we begin uh, taking this up, I want to make a comment about what we considered last time. Why is it that Shepherd's doctrine of justification is so dangerous when he says that it was Abraham's faith that was imputed to Abraham and that it's our faith defined as inclusive of faithfulness and obedience? 
What is the problem with saying that, that our righteousness is our faith, that the righteousness that is imputed to us is our faith? The problem with that is that even a genuine saving faith is imperfect. I believe, help my unbelief. All of our faith is riddled with doubt to some extent. Even in Romans 4, it talks about Abraham growing strong in faith, which presupposes that he was weaker in faith. And you see throughout his life, as it's depicted in the book of Genesis, that you know he believes God, but then the incident with Hagar and this and that, there are many ups and downs in his life of faith. And so if we're to say that Abraham's faith is his righteousness, and his faith is imperfect, therefore his righteousness is imperfect in the sight of a holy God. Therefore, uh, the sin of unbelief corrupts and disqualifies his righteousness on that supposition. So that's why it's such a concern. That's why this has rightly been called by the Reformed Church in the United States a false gospel or another gospel. The other question that arises is how much faith is enough? How much faithfulness is enough? How much obedience is enough if it's imperfect? Now, how do I know if my faith and my faithfulness is sufficient and satisfactory to be regarded as worthy of justification? How do I know that? And in our next lecture, we'll be considering Shepherd's view of justification, or excuse me, of assurance, and his view of the marks of grace, his view of evangelism and regeneration and baptism, but really it, it centers around his view of assurance. And what we're going to find is that whereas on the doctrine of justification he was legalistic, we're going to find that on the doctrine of assurance, following the Roman Catholic pattern, he is an antinomian. Yes, I said that right. Norman Shepherd is an antinomian. When it comes to the question of the marks of grace and of how do I know I'm saved, he shuns self-examination and he is an antinomian. So legalistic on justification, but loose on assurance. In any event, that's where we're heading. But first we have to consider this biblical and historical issue of the imputation of Christ's obedience. Now, we've already seen that Shepherd believes that it's the faith of the believer that is imputed as righteousness in justification. But Shepherd is also going to say that imputed to the believer in justification is the passive obedience, the suffering unto death, satisfying the penalty of sin. That passive obedience is imputed to the believer. Now, how does this work out logically? Uh, nobody seems to know. Uh, how is it that the believer's righteousness is his faith and faithfulness, which is imputed, and now he's talking about Christ's obedience, passive obedience being imputed to the believer. Who knows? We're not here to really make sense of it just to recount what he says. But he does acknowledge that Christ's passive obedience or his suffering, the penalty of sin, is imputed to the believer in justification but he denies that the active obedience of Christ, Christ's fulfillment of all the precepts of the law to fulfill all righteousness, he denies that that is imputed to the believer as their 
positive righteousness in justification. And I want us to look at a couple of verses here before we go any further. When we talk about Christ's passive obedience, that's not really the best term because when Christ went to the cross, He was actively bearing our sin, carrying our sorrows, and not my will, but your will be done, O God. That was an active decision of obedience unto death on the cross. But in any event, we can use these terms. Our our confessional documents don't use the terms active and passive, and I think that's a good thing because I think there, there are some just, they aren't the best terms. But the concept certainly is there. But Colossians 2, 14. Colossians 2, 14. Speaking of Christ, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So Christ, by suffering and dying, the shedding of His blood, gives us forgiveness or remission of sins. And then... Colossians 2.14, Colossians 2.14, and then also Colossians chapter 2 and verse 20, and by Him to reconcile all things by Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you who were once alienated, sorry, this is chapter 1, I apologize, chapter 1. But having made peace through the blood of His cross, verse 20, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. And then you go to Colossians 2, verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So the remission and forgiveness of our sins through His death on the cross, through His suffering, His obedience unto death. We also see on the positive side, His preceptive obedience, His active obedience. Matthew 3, verse 5. Excuse me, 3, verse 15. Jesus asked John to baptize Him to fulfill all righteousness. So baptism was a command. Even Jesus obeyed that command along with all the other commands that God gave. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were constituted sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be constituted, that's the Greek word, constituted righteous. So Adam's disobedience to God's precept constituted us all sinners in Adam. Jesus Christ, through His obedience to God's precept, constitutes His people righteous. In addition, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So, it's this great exchange. All of our sin is imputed to Christ, and He takes it upon Himself. He suffers the punishment of sin, and then we become the righteousness of God in Him. His righteousness is imputed to us, received by faith. 
Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8. These verses speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. What does a bondservant do? Obeys commands. He took the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him. So, Jesus, in his passive obedience of suffering, was also actively obeying the command to go to the cross, along with all the other commands that the Father had given him. So, his passive obedience is an example of active obedience. You see the intertwined nature of these two things. And in fact, his active obedience to God's law is an aspect of his passive obedience, his humility, his humiliation. Because Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says that he was made under the law, born of a woman. So he humbled himself to even be subject to the law that he as God had decreed. So by obeying the precepts, he's actually uh, suffering humiliation. And by suffering humiliation, he's obeying the precept. Not my will, but your will be done. So these two things are intertwined. And they, according to the biblical message, they constitute the righteousness that is imputed to believers. So here we are, Adam sinned, we're fallen, and we deserve God's wrath. Jesus took that wrath. He satisfied God's righteous requirement of punishment. And then he gives us the obedience and righteousness that we need to then to have eternal life. So much more could be said, but that is the biblical view. Jesus is, Jeremiah 23, 6, the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. And the language that's used, once again, just reinforcing this, John 10, verse 18, Jesus speaking of his death and resurrection, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So active and passive obedience, intertwined, inseparable and yet distinguished. His obedience unto death on the cross. Now, listen to James Buchanan in his wonderful book, The Doctrine of Justification. This is one of the Free Church Fathers. This is the guy, and this is the book that you want to read on justification. You know, once you get through all 66 books of the Bible, this is the one. He says, The Reformers held and taught that we were justified only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us or put down to our account. And they based their doctrine on such considerations as these, that a righteousness of some kind is indispensable if God is to accept us as righteous, that it must be such a righteousness as is adequate to meet and satisfy all the requirements of that perfect law, which is God's rule in judgment. Remember, Jesus, the rich young ruler, said that how are you going to enter into life? Keep the commandments. Romans chapter 2, the doers of the law shall be justified. Galatians 3, if you even fail to keep one of God's commands, one of the things written in the book of the law, you're under a curse. So that's what they're saying. Continued quotation here. That its requirements, both penal and preceptive, 
That's passive and active, but these are better terms. Penal and preceptive were fulfilled by the obedience, passive and active, of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he thus became the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth in his name. James Buchanan, not the president, although he probably would have made a better president, except that he was born in Scotland. Wonderful book, wonderful book, and that's a summary of the Reformed teaching. Now, according to Shepard, since justification includes only the remission of sins, then only the passive obedience of Christ at Calvary, not his entire life of active obedience, is imputed in justification. Again, Shepard's saying that since justification includes only the remission of sins, not this positive warrant for eternal life, just the remission of sins, therefore only the passive obedience of Christ at Calvary is imputed in justification. And so he denies that Christ's entire life of active obedience is credited to our account. Shepard, quote, Justification is the remission of sin on the ground of the righteousness of Christ imputed to the believer. This righteousness was his suffering and death for us, what later theologians called his passive obedience. The righteousness of Christ secures the remission of sin, end quote. Shepherd again, quote, Now how did Christ perform this legal righteousness for us? Did he do it by fulfilling the law during the whole course of his life, what theologians ordinarily refer to as his active obedience? Or did he do it by submitting to punishment prescribed in the law for transgressions of the law, what theologians ordinarily refer to as passive obedience? You see, he's trying to separate these two and say, is it one or the other? He goes on, the righteousness Christ wrought out for us was not the fulfillment of the demands of the law during the whole course of his life, but rather his death and resurrection to pay the penalty for sin. In other words, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us for our justification is not his active obedience, but his passive obedience, end quote. So Christ took the punishment of sin to remove sin from us, but he did not perfectly obey the law to give us a right and title to eternal life. That's what Shepard's saying. Now, according to Shepard, the historic reformed and confessional view of justification limits justification to the remission of sin. So he says, oh, the, the early reformed, the Calvin's view and the early reformers and, and so on and so forth, it's just the remission of sins. It's not granting us a right and title, a positive warrant for eternal life. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Well, in Christ I have, and his imputed obedience is my basis for eternal life. Shepherd says, no, because for Shepherd, the only positive righteousness you have that will vindicate your claim to eternal life at the last day is your sanctified obedience. That's what's going to get you into heaven. Now, he would say it's not meritorious, but he, he's taking away the imputation of Christ's law-keeping in order that your sanctified good works would take the place of it. And he's saying that the historic Reformed and confessional view actually limits justification to the remission of sin and that it does not assert the imputation of Christ's active obedience to believers. And that is a bold claim. That's basically taking the Reformed view of justification and turning it on its head and saying it's not the Reformed view of justification. So this is a very bold and audacious claim that he makes. Quote, 
We do not find a belief in the imputation of active obedience in Calvin or Sinus or the Heidelberg Catechism for the reason that their understanding of justification as the remission of sins did not require it and they did not find it in the Bible, end quote. He continues, quote, early Reformed theology had no doctrine of the imputation of active obedience. He goes on, even the Westminster Confession as late as 1647 was written as a compromise document to accommodate the views of three prominent members of the Westminster Assembly who did not subscribe to the imputation of active obedience. So he's saying even Westminster was written in such a way as to allow people who don't agree with the imputation of Christ's active obedience to sign it. So it really doesn't assert that doctrine. Now, Shepard is dogmatic in this. He tries to make arguments to prove this. But I think here, just pausing for a moment, in my own theological pilgrimage, this was a huge milestone for me when I was reading these things in his book and when I was beginning to think, well, is that really true? I mean, maybe Calvin didn't hold these things. And maybe this is such a later development and the early Reformed creeds and the Heidelberg and Ursinus and, and even Westminster is maybe a little shaky on this. And it just throws these things into question. So I said, well, I'm going to investigate this. And uh, I, most of the material from these lectures is from a paper I wrote in seminary. But I'm going to investigate this. I'm going to go through Denison's four volumes on the early uh, 16th and 17th century Reformed creeds and confessions. I'm going to go through Calvin and aided by some resources, but mainly just getting into these theologians. I'm going to read through Calvin's Institutes from beginning to end and all these kind of things and, and try to get a sense. I'm going to look at Ursinus's commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. I mean, the author himself should know what it means. And, and what I found was that Shepard's claim is utterly without any warrant. It's, it's when, when we go through some of this material, and I've been very selective, there's most of it I've, I've cut out for purposes of time, believe it or not. But what Shepard says here is, you know, you, you get the sense that he's either totally incompetent, like how is this guy a seminary professor? Where did he get his PhD? Or he's a, a wolf trying to deceive people. I'm not sure, maybe there are other options. I'm not really aware of, of what those other options would be. But I want us to look at this and recognize that heresy is frequently the child of laziness. Heresy is frequently the child of laziness. Either lazy false teachers who don't do their research and they find a quote from Calvin that they take out of context or they find something in her sinus, they don't spend much time on it, and they slap together these theories and get it published and, and you know, lazy false teachers or lazy targets of false teachers People that are lazy, that just pick up a paperback book, like this is typical in movements, theological movements. So in this case, the Reconstructionist movement, but many movements can fall prey to this, where you pick up a book by someone that you've heard is pretty good, they have a PhD, they look like an expert, and then you read it and you're like, oh, wow. And then you go, you know, regurgitating and, and spouting those views as you see so many of the federal visionists doing with this type of claim by Shepard. And one can only conclude that they're lazy. They just didn't 
I mean, if a bozo like me in seminary can figure this out and just open these books, Doug Wilson has no excuse, uh, notwithstanding whatever you may think of him. So it's lazy false teachers, lazy targets of false teachers, lazy people in the pews, in other words, or lazy pastors reading the books, or both. In many cases, it's both. And I should say, Doug Wilson does hold to the imputation of Christ's act of obedience, but he does tend to spread around some of these historical claims to mitigate, to mitigate any sort of dogmatic certainty that this is the, the Reformed view. He, he kind of uses Shepard to get his buddies off the hook for denying it. But in any event, uh, laziness. We need to be careful. We need to read classic primary source hardback volumes and whenever possible, we need to read them in their entirety. What we'll find in Shepherd is that, especially with Ursinus, he just picks the section on justification, and most of the clarifying relevant excerpts are from other sections. For instance, the one on Christ the Mediator, or the one on the Law of God. And I have to think that, just thinking, thinking the best of him, morally speaking, that he's not trying to deceive people, that maybe he just didn't read those other sections. I don't know. But we need to read books from beginning to end wherever possible. Uh, we need to be more thorough and we need to be more selective in the books that we read. We, I mean, forget about blogs. Forget about most paperbacks. Forget about secondary analysis, YouTube videos, entertaining personalities on their video blog, theology that bites back and all of that nonsense. You, you need to take a bite out of some hardback books and 2 Timothy 4, verse 13, Paul says, yeah, bring me a coat because I'm cold, but uh, bring the books. We need to bring the books. So that's a lesson from the Federal Vision. But let's look here at the testimony of John Calvin. Is it really the case that Calvin only understood justification as remission of sins, and therefore he didn't see anything of the imputation of Christ's act of obedience in the Bible, and he didn't teach it? Well, let's look at Calvin's first catechism, section 16. Quote, Thus stripped of our own righteousness, we are clad with Christ's righteousness. Unrighteous in our own works, we are justified by faith in Christ. End quote. Well, let's get even more specific here. Calvin in the Institutes, quote, From this we infer that we must seek from Christ what the law would give if anyone could fulfill it. Or what is the same thing that we obtain through Christ's grace, what God promised in the law for our works? He who will do these things will live in them. Now, this is what Shepherd denies. He denies that the law gives a promise of eternal life upon the condition of perfect obedience. He denies that. He says that's a Roman Catholic merit theology. Okay? But notice, Calvin is saying the law does promise that, and since you and I can't do it, Christ had to do it for us. So Adam in the garden had an opportunity to obey God and inherit eternal life according to the covenant of works. He sinned and now is, fell under the wrath of God. So now he was two steps from eternal life. He needed the punishment taken away and the positive requirement of obedience fulfilled, passive and active obedience, in order to have eternal life. Calvin totally agrees with that. That's not a later Reformed paradigm. That's Calvin's paradigm. That's the biblical paradigm. He goes on, For if righteousness consists in the observance of the law, who will deny that Christ merited favor for us 
when by taking that burden upon himself, he reconciled us to God as if we had kept the law. He goes on, what was the purpose of this subjection of Christ to the law, but to acquire righteousness for us, undertaking to pay what we could not pay? Hence that imputation of righteousness without works, which Paul discusses, end quote. And I'd urge you to confer with Calvin's commentary on Romans 2.13 and on Romans 10.5 and 6 for further confirmation on that teaching. Here's another quote from Calvin in the Institutes. Calvin writes, quote, Now someone asks, How has Christ abolished sin, banished the separation between us and God, and acquired righteousness to render God favorable and kindly toward us? To this we can in general reply that He has achieved this for us by the whole course of His obedience. Notice that. The whole course of His obedience. That seems to remind me of what Shepard was talking about earlier when he was denying that Christ's entire life of righteousness is imputed to us. Let's see. Right, that's in the quote I read from Shepard. Did he do it by fulfilling the law during the whole course of his life? What theologians ordinarily refer to as his active obedience. And then he says, oh, Calvin never taught that. Well, again, it really, I mean, you think he hasn't read the Institutes, Norman Shepard? Or is he lying? Is he deceiving? I don't know, but it's very interesting that the very language Shepard uses is the language Calvin uses. He has achieved this for us by the whole course of His obedience. This is proved by Paul's testimony. As by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, we are made righteous. Romans 5.19. See, I didn't just come up with that. That's not a modern reform paradigm. That's Calvin. That's the Bible. That's Paul. Calvin continues in another passage to be sure Paul extends the basis of the pardon that frees us from the curse of the law to the whole life of Christ. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, subject to the law, to redeem those who were under the curse of the law. Galatians 4, 4, and 5. In other words, Christ's obedience began at His conception. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Calvin's saying. Thus, in his very baptism also, he asserted that he fulfilled a part of righteousness in obediently carrying out his Father's commandment, Matthew 3.15, which we looked at. In short, from the time when he took on the form of a servant, he began to pay the price of liberation in order to redeem us, end quote. Well, let's look at Ursinus. Shepherd had been ministering, I think, in the Christian Reformed Church, certainly in a church that had the three forms of unity, at least in, in nominal terms, as their doctrinal position. And so, Zacharias Ursinus, primary author of the Heidelberg Catechism, is a very significant figure. I would urge all of you to read his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. It's excellent. And there are so many debates that arise, both in the British and Dutch continental reformed settings that are helpful to go back to Ursinus and see what, what is the original Dutch confessional perspective. But Heidelberg Catechism question 60, how art thou righteous before God? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. 
so that though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commands of God and kept none of them and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding God without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, even so as if I had never had as if I never had had nor committed any sin. Yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ hath accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. End quote. Now, Ursinus expounds this in his commentary on the Heidelberg, and he expounds this concept, as I mentioned, at various points in that volume. Shepherd cites this section from the Heidelberg, and Shepherd says that the righteousness there is only the passive obedience of Christ. Well, let's look at what Ursinus says in expounding his own teaching. Quote, created righteousness is legal and evangelical. By legal righteousness, we mean fulfilling of the law by one who is thereby declared righteous, or it is such a fulfilling of the law as that which is accomplished by one's own obedience or it is a conformity to the law which he has who is declared righteous. The legal righteousness was the righteousness of Adam before the fall and is in the angels and in Christ as far as he is man. Now, legal righteousness is saying, here's how you can have eternal life. Keep the law yourself. We could say personal righteousness. That's what our sinus is getting at. Think of Adam before the fall, and if he had obeyed, He'd have had that perfect legal righteousness requisite for eternal life. He fulfilled it in himself. That's the idea. Uh, Notice the other type of righteousness. Evangelical righteousness, writes Ursinus, is the fulfilling of the law performed not by us, but by another in our stead and imputed unto us of God by faith. Legal righteousness is is performed either by obedience to the law or by punishment. The law requires one or the other. So he's saying if you have personal righteousness, like Adam before the fall, you have one of two ways of fulfilling the law. Either you obey the command and fulfill the terms of the covenant of works and you have eternal life, or you suffer the punishment for your disobedience to the law and you're fulfilling the law for all eternity bearing that punishment in hell. So from the standpoint of personal righteousness, personal legal righteousness, it's one or the other. Because once you are damned for your sin and you're fulfilling the law by punishment, you're disqualified from fulfilling the law's positive precept. So for personal righteousness, it's one or the other. Now, Shepard takes this totally out of context, as you can see in the footnote, and tries to argue, see, legal righteousness is one or the other. Either you suffer the punishment or you obey the positive command, but not both. And therefore, Christ obeyed for us in one or the other, but not both. But notice for Ursinus, personal legal righteousness is not the righteousness imputed to the believer. It's evangelical righteousness, which Christ fulfilled, bearing the sin debt and obeying the precept so that we could have eternal life. And you see that. Let's look at some of the quotes here as he talks about this uh, evangelical righteousness. Quote, Christ satisfied the law in a twofold respect, first by his own righteousness, and secondly by making satisfaction for our sins 
each of which is most perfect, end quote. Again, or sinus. We can never satisfy the law, neither by punishment nor obedience. Right? Because our punishment goes forever. It's never satisfied. Uh, and now we're disqualified from positive obedience by our sin. So we can't do it. He says, although we are not able to make satisfaction through obedience, we are nevertheless able to make it through the endurance of a sufficient punishment, not in ourselves, but in Christ, who has satisfied the law both by obedience and punishment. You see how dangerous Shepherd's books are and his, his writings, his, his lectures. I mean, again, this is the guy, you know, heading into the latter part of the 20th century. This is the guy who's in charge of systematic theology at Westminster in Philadelphia. And he's saying things like this. Oh, Ursinus never said that. Ursinus says it all over the place. I had to cut out quotations from Ursinus to fit in the lecture outline. Again, Ursinus, the man Christ was perfectly righteous or has fulfilled the law in four respects. One, by his own righteousness. Christ alone performed perfect obedience such as the law requires. Two, by enduring punishment sufficient for our sins. There was a necessity that this double fulfillment of the law should be in Christ. For unless His righteousness had been full and perfect, He could not have delivered us from everlasting punishment. The former is called the fulfilling of the law by obedience, by which He Himself was conformable thereto. The latter is the fulfilling of the law by punishment, which He suffered for us that we might not remain subject to eternal condemnation. One more quotation. Ursinus says this, Christ fulfilled the law in two respects, by obedience and suffering. He was just and holy in Himself and did not violate the law in a single instance, but partly performed in our behalf those things which He was not bound to do and partly sustained the punishment of the law. So He humbled Himself to take our punishment and obey the law which He as God had decreed. So, obedience and suffering. Those are the terms that Ursinus uses. Obedience and punishment. Double fulfillment of the law. He says it in just about any and every which way you could possibly say it, other than active and passive obedience. But again, I think his, his language is actually more helpful than those terms. Now, Let's look at some of the Reformed Confessions and Catechisms. How about the French Confession 1551, probably written by John Calvin? Quote, We believe that all our justification rests upon the remission of our sins, in which also is the only blessedness, our only blessedness, as saith the psalmist, Psalm 32, verse 2. We therefore reject all other means of justification before God and without claiming any virtue or merit, we rest simply in the obedience of Jesus Christ, which is imputed to us, now listen to this, as much to blot out all our sins as to make us find grace and favor in the sight of God. That's Article 18 of the French Confession. Notice, it says remission of sins, but if you keep reading, it says not just remission of sins, but also that positive favor and grace of finding acceptance unto eternal life. That is included, not just remission of sins. How about the Belgic Confession, 1561, written by Guido de Bray? Quote, However, 
To speak more clearly, we do not mean that faith itself justifies us, for it is only an instrument with which we embrace Christ our righteousness. But Jesus Christ, imputing to us all His merits, so the early reformers were totally fine with the idea of Christ's merits, despite what Shepard tries to allege. Christ imputing to us all His merits and so many holy works which He hath done for us and in our stead is our righteousness. Article 22. And you can cross-reference the Canons of Dort, Head 2, Rejection 4, which reinforces this position from the standpoint of Dutch confessional orthodoxy. Second Helvetic Confession by uh, Heinrich Bullinger, 1566. Not part of the three forms of unity, but a very significant confessional document from the continent. Quote, We teach that this law was not given to men that we should be justified by keeping it, but that by the knowledge thereof, we might rather acknowledge our infirmity, sin, and condemnation, and so despairing of our strength might turn unto Christ by faith. It goes on, Therefore Christ is the perfecting of the law and our fulfilling of it, who as He took away the curse of the law when He was made a curse for us, so does He communicate uh, unto us by faith His fulfilling thereof and His righteousness and obedience are imputed to us. Not just remission of sins, imputation of His righteousness and obedience. He is our fulfilling of the law. That's chapter 15, section 3. How about the Church of England? 39 Articles of the Church of England, 1571, quote, We are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, we are justified by faith only. Excuse me. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort as more largely is expressed in the homily of justification. End quote. That's from Article 11. Listen to the uh, homily of justification. This is most likely written by Thomas Cranmer. He writes this in this homily, Christ is now the righteousness of all them that truly do believe in Him. He for them paid their ransom by His death. He for them fulfilled the law in His life so that now in Him and by Him every true Christian man may be called a fulfiller of the law, for as much as that which their infirmity lacked, Christ's justice hath supplied. So that's the 39 articles are saying. Go read that to understand our view of justification and imputation. Okay, how about the Irish Articles of Religion drafted up by Archbishop Usher, 1615, quote, It pleased our Heavenly Father of His infinite mercy, without any desert of ours, to provide for us the most precious merits of His own Son, whereby our ransom might be fully paid, the law fulfilled, and His justice fully satisfied, so that Christ is now the righteousness of all them that truly believe in Him. He for them paid their ransom by His death, He for them fulfilled the law in His life, that now in Him and by Him every true Christian man may be called a fulfiller of the law. See how they're 
you, you see the cross-pollination with the homily on justification. For as much as that which our infirmity was not able to affect, Christ's justice hath performed. End quote. Westminster Confession of Faith, 1647. Okay, we're, we're concluding here. We're coming down to the end. Uh, coming down to the wire, but of course... It's the Westminster standards that are nearest and dearest to us as Presbyterians, though we love all these Reformed confessions. And remember, Shepherd has said that, in fact, Westminster was drawn up as a compromise document, a consensus document to cater to the kind of people that would deny the imputation of active obedience. Uh, now, before we read this, I want to read a quotation from the OPC Report on Justification in 2006. Listen to what they say of Shepard's claim here from a historical perspective. This is the kind of thing that these federal vision type of people, they need to do some more reading and find out that some of these claims that are being made are just dubious at best. Quote, Shepard's assertion that the Westminster Assembly accommodated the views of those who did not subscribe to the imputation of active obedience is an unsurprising claim, an unsurprising claim based particularly on earlier works. William Barker, for instance, has argued that certain figures succeeded in getting the term whole obedience removed from the phrase imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them in chapter 11 of the Westminster Confession, all sides agreeing that whole obedience in that context meant both the active and passive obedience of Christ. So here's this scholar... I think he might have been from Westminster as well. But uh, this scholar is saying, look, there was a debate at the assembly. They could have included whole obedience in the language of imputation, but they left it out because they didn't want to assert the imputation of both active and passive obedience. Continuing this OPC report, quote, Barker's account, however, conflates two entirely separate events. The debate over the whole obedience in 1643 was decided in favor of adding whole obedience as part of a revision of Article 11 on justification in the 39 Articles. So this was early when they weren't even drafting the Westminster Confession. They were still trying to revise the existing 39 Articles. And in fact, they decided in favor of the phrase whole obedience. It goes on, the debate over chapter 11 of the Westminster Confession of Faith took place three years later, perhaps without some of the earlier disputants, and apparently did not revisit all the earlier debates about active obedience, end quote. In other words, the Westminster doesn't use the phrase whole obedience. They approved it in revision of the 39 articles, but when they decided to draft a brand new confession, they decided not to include that phrase, but there's no indication that they did that because they didn't like the imputation of Christ's act of obedience. They just decided that there were better terms, apparently. So you can see how these are very deceptive claims. Now let's just look at what the confession says here. Chapter 19, section 1. Quote, God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling, and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it, end quote. And you can look at section six as well. It's relevant. 
okay? Confession of faith 8.5, the Lord Jesus, by His perfect obedience and sacrifice of Himself, which He, through the eternal Spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of His Father and purchased, so it's positive, and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto Him, end quote. Perfect obedience and sacrifice. Harkening back to Ursinus and perhaps other writers as well. Now the larger catechism. Uh, question and answer 70. says this, quote, Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which He pardoneth all their sins, accepteth and accounteth their persons righteous in His sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone, end quote. That's not a consensus compromise statement. That's just meat and potatoes reformed theology from the very inception of the Reformation. Final two quotations, Larger Catechism 71. It speaks of Christ by His obedience and death making a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in behalf of them that are justified. And then, larger catechism question 55. Christ maketh intercession by His appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven in the merit of His obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring His will to have it applied to all believers. So, and, and by the end of the answer, it talks about even giving acceptance of their persons and services. So, the imputation of Christ's obedience and sacrifice, His active and passive obedience, however you want to slice it, His death, His satisfaction, His perfect fulfilling of the law, all of these different phrases, and yet it's so clear from beginning to end, and that was just a very selective survey of Reformed theologians and confessions and creeds since the time of the Reformation. So, once again, uh, the moral of the story here is that we need to do our due diligence, we, we, and we can't, we can't be satisfied with shoddy scholarship at our seminaries. We need our students reading entire books, not as many paperbacks. For, again, forget about the blogs. Okay, forget about the blogs. I know that means probably someday I'll have a blog or a podcast, but for now, you know, it's like R.C. Sproul with study Bibles. He said, well, you shouldn't have a study Bible until he came out with one, and then, then uh, you know, you need the Reformation study Bible. But, but I'm saying blogs and podcasts, these kinds of things, be very careful that you don't waste your time on these things out of due proportion and that you're reading good, solid books that stand the test of time. Okay. It's almost one o'clock. Does anybody have any questions? Happy to conclude at this point, but if you have questions, I will try to answer them briskly. Yes. Yes. So the passive obedience of Christ is his suffering the punishment of sin. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief throughout his entire life, his obedience unto death. His, his passive obedience unto death. But also his active obedience unto death is 
from the inception of his conception and birth, he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He obeyed and fulfilled God's law in thought, word, and deed throughout his entire life. And so he obeyed all the precepts of God. So these are the two things we need to go to heaven. We need our sin debt canceled out and the punishment taken on our behalf. Jesus died, suffered unto death for that. And we need a right and title to eternal life. If you would enter into life, Jesus says, keep the commandments. Well, we can't perfectly. So we need his perfect righteousness. And we become the righteousness of God through him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So we need that twofold fulfillment of the law, fulfillment of the law's penalty, fulfillment of the law's precept in order to have assurance of eternal life, in order to be able to go to the grave with confidence. And J. Gresham Machen, uh, one of the founding fathers of the OPC, if not the founding father of the OPC, Uh, When he was on his deathbed, he wrote to John Murray that he was so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. No hope without it. And sadly, in future lectures, we're going to look at some of the Federal Vision people just using that quote and and just casting it aside and saying it's wrong. But, But the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. Any other questions? Yes. Yes, okay, Matthew 19, rich young ruler, is that relevant for the necessity of an active precept of obedience for eternal life? I would say yes. If you read the Roman Catholic Catechism, which I think it's included in my little booklet that summarizes uh, that catechism, Roman Catholic Catechism takes the position that Norman Shepherd and Federal Visionists take that Matthew 19 is just Jesus calling upon him to be repentant and obedient for eternal life. And that as long as we keep the commandments and avoid the deadly mortal sins, then there are various other ways the church can help get us off the hook for the venial sins, the smaller sins. So, and and you see something similar in the federal vision. I would say that Matthew 19 is definitely calling upon the rich young ruler to do something that he cannot do. He was self-righteous, so Jesus brought him to the first use of the law, which shows us our inability and our disqualification and our need for the perfect righteousness of Christ. However, you can look up my sermon on the rich young ruler in my Matthew series. I also believe that intertwined in there, there is as well a call to repentance because he loved his money. And there's a sense in which in order for him to come to Christ, he had to repent as well as see his inability and believe on Christ for justification. He had to turn from his love of self and love of money unto Christ. So you can listen to that sermon, but what I try to do is show that in Jesus' presentation of the gospel, there's both a call to faith in Christ's imputed righteousness no one is good but God, you know, and so on and so forth. But there's also a call embedded in there to repentance, as there always should be. So we don't want to take the view of the people that I think Norman Shepherd is reacting against 
and that federal vision is reacting against, where there's such an emphasis on Christ's active obedience that we forget to tell people repent or perish. And, and that's in there too. Any other questions? Yes. Absolutely. So that's why, again, passive obedience. Now, in fairness, the word passive comes from passion, which means suffering, but it's just not a helpful term, as you just pointed out. Uh, It really distracts us, I think, from the priestly nature of the cross. Jesus, like you said, is not just the lamb, the sacrifice, but he's the priest actively, obediently offering up himself as a sacrifice. He is offering. He is active. And at the end, he says, it is finished. He cries out in victory. So his suffering, he is actively putting to shame the principalities and powers and crushing the serpent's head. So that's it's a great point. And that's why I think the language of Ursinus and the language of Calvin and the language of these various creeds and confessions, including Westminster, can sometimes be more helpful Uh, And even James Buchanan, the penalty and the precept, some of these are are much more helpful than active and passive in terms of vocabulary. All right, one more. Yeah, passive is kind of a stumbling block, right? Especially in our day where that word comes across in a negative way. You know, if somebody says you're passive, that's not really a compliment. I mean, I'm trying to think of a context in which I don't usually get accused of that, but, um, but passive. So that's not the best word even in modern parlance to try to communicate that. All right, let's pray. Gracious God, reinforce among us our utter inability, our utter imperfection, Turn our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ, Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. And we do pray that in response to that imputation of his perfect active and passive, penal and preceptive obedience, that you would give us hearts of active obedience, that, that we would then work out our own salvation with fear and trembling as, uh, as an act of gratitude and submission to the Lord our righteousness. We pray in his name. Amen.